My guest this week is an intimidatingly accomplished man. He's my age, and he's done enough for several lifetimes. He is Rory Stewart. Rory is a British academic, diplomat, explorer, author, soldier, and politician who is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where he teaches politics and international relations. Prior to this, he served as a minister in four different departments of the UK government before being appointed to his final ministerial role in the cabinet as Secretary of State for International Development. He resigned from this role when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. He was also a member of Parliament for Penrith and the Border from 2010 to 2019. He has walked across Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, India and Nepal and written a best-selling book, The Places in Between, about his experiences. It was named by the New York Times as a flat-out masterpiece and listed as one of the most ten notable books of 2006. His other books include The Prince of the Marshes and The Marches, A Borderland Journey Between England and Scotland. His prodigious Wikipedia entry tells me that he's proficient in 11 languages, and in this interview he admitted he reads a thousand books a year. I think he's the most accomplished person I've met in my life. Here's our conversation. Rory Stewart, I thank you so, so much for doing this podcast. I'm so grateful to you. It's such a treat to see your face. It's been years and years since being in the background, I think, of an Oxford quad or something, but it's really lovely to see you and thank you for making the time. Well, great pleasure to be with you and thank you. And we're speaking from a long way. Um, and you are in we are I, I am in malibu in the hills and uh trying not to get burned down and you're in scotland whereabouts are you i'm just on the edge of the highlands but it's unbelievably mm. hot i've just come back from a run and i didn't expect it yeah. it's so hot in scotland yeah sounds unlikely it's gloomy here in malibu so we swapped for a moment um Rory, thank you for your books. It was such a treat. It was so lovely. I'm always, it's always such a thrill for me when I get people's lists and starting to look through them and, um, not make sense of them, but try and find like, what's the, what's the thread here? What's the, what's the relationship or, or somehow guess at, uh, how meaningful they might be to you. I've had you in my ear for a week now because I've been listening to your book on audio tape, The Places in Between. And it's been so lovely. I'm so grateful that you chose to read it. I, it really is such a wonderful thing when authors are equipped and not everyone is to read their own work because you really hear them linger over what's meaningful. You hear it, you hear it land, I think, differently when oh, the author has written it. So I think it's a, it's a difficult um, calculation. It's a very difficult calculation. It's I mean, a difficult... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Often people feel I, I, I agree. You want, to, you want to get an actor to read it. Um, I was grateful to you. It felt an enormously personal journey. And, and so it was very, very meaningful to hear your, your observations in your voice and, and, I, I just adored the book. I really did. It was, it's just a beautiful piece of work and an extraordinary odyssey to, to have undertaken. So thank you for writing it. <laughs> thank you. Um, let's talk about your first book. Your first book is one I haven't read for many years, Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern. The full title is The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman by Lawrence Stern. It was published in nine volumes from 1759 until 1767. Uh, 
Tell me how this book shaped you or changed you. Well, the first thing is the context in which I approached the book. So I think I tried to read it when I was a university student, but I returned to it much, much later, um, listening mm. to it on tape, a rather wonderful mm. reading, which had been done by somebody working for the Royal National Institute of the Blind. And oh, wow. it's a book which you really need a genius to read because it's mm. very, very difficult on the paper to get the jokes. But somehow this man must have had a brain like a supercomputer and he could trip <laughs> over the curious references and he could hit the punchlines just right. And he really mm. made it came alive. And I decided it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. Um, the, the book for people listening who don't know it is um, he's trying to write his own autobiography but he finds it very, very difficult to get beyond the moment of his own conception. And he gets more and more caught up in the minutes and the hours after his birth. So that, as he says, it, it's taking him nearly a year to describe a day. And so the whole thing um, obviously begins as a, a joke on himself and the absurdity of trying to write an account of a human life when you could mm. quite literally, as he does, spend hundreds of pages describing a day. <laughs> but it becomes much more than that, because once you've got that fundamental joke, once you've seen what's absurd in the whole idea of trying to write somebody's life, everything else begins to seem absurd too. And you suddenly realize that this is a man who can see what's ridiculous in everything, in academia, in mm. human thought, in relationships, in patriotism, in boundaries, in warfare. All of it is delicately taken to pieces. And he creates this central hero, who is this amazing man, his uncle Toby, who is presented as a veteran of a, a wars in the Low Countries, who's been injured in the groin. So there's a sort of sex joke going on all the way through the book. But it's a very, very gentle, subtle joke because um, it's connected to a man of immense modesty. His uncle is a, a middle-aged man who's incredibly kind and modest and patient and very, very simple and emerges out of this sort of array of crazy intellectuals and pontificating priests and theologians and scientists this gentle voice of his uncle. Mm -hmm. I'm so intrigued that you discovered this as a book on tape, especially after what I was just saying. Do you remember how old you were when you heard it for the first time? I mean, obviously you said you encountered it at college, but. Yes. Yeah, so I, I began listening to it when I was already a, a member of parliament and it was mm. a deeply, deeply consoling for me to mm. have this extraordinary, absurd account of a couple of days in the life of an infant in mid-1700s Britain was just such a wonderful relief at the end of the day. And I would, if I woke up at three or four in the morning, I'd listen to it. And it brought things beautifully into perspective. What a lovely thing. So the book became both comic and, and um, a consolation of sorts while you read it. Very much. And a wonderful portrait of Englishness. I mean, one of the odd things about being a politician is that almost more than anyone else, you have to have a, an idea of your country. 
It's, mm. it, it's, that's not necessary for most professions or most jobs, but politicians mm. by their nature represent people within a certain border and not people outside of border. Your voters mm. live outside of border, right? So nation, mm. identity, country is absolutely central to what you're doing and what you're representing. And mm. Tristram Shandy has a wonderfully um, unusual open, unexpected, and attractive portrait of what it means to be English, particularly, not Scottish, but mm. English. Right. That's so interesting. I, I, I'm not sure I had imagined that when I think about Tristram Shandy. I mean, I, it, it, you know, we think of it as, or it's considered the first English novel, and yet it does it's so the anti-novel in so many ways in that it's this huge sprawling digression, everything that I think of as a novel, which suggests something boundaried and contained and formal is absent from this. It's this enormous quilt that seems to keep unfurling in front of you. As you say, he doesn't get to his birth until I think it's chapter four. Uh, and that's, it's not even his birth. That's his uh, conception. And it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary book. And I, I was so intrigued, as I say, to see it on your list, because it is so inaccessible, I think, on the page. And it makes such sense that your point of entry was in the audio form. I listening, I, I really recommend anyone who wants to tackle it, to tackle it listening. Because it's a great um, idea. Do you remember his name? The, the, um, the reader, in case we could find so, it. It's so embarrassing that I can't find it. Let, let, me, nope, it's f- let me try to find it's it fine. for you. And then, but what, once I've found it for you, I will send it to you. And it'd be wonderful if you could recommend it to anyone who's listening. Because I, I, I've never been able to really track him down. I think he's not a professional actor. There was this wonderful um, moment where the British Royal National Institute for the Blind asked for volunteers to read books, which were then recorded and given free mm. to people who are blind. And Audible mm. seems to have brought up some of the back catalogue of that. Oh, great. And, and so what you get are people who are very talented readers and actors, but are not, I think, at all professionals. So they're, they're not, you know, mm. when you, when I tried to look up this man, I could find nothing about him on the internet. Oh, interesting. Oh, lovely. Yes, please do send it to me and I'll put it in the show notes when we, when we release great. the episode. Um, I was also struck that, you know, he, the other thing that Stern is famous for is this beautiful book, A Sentimental Journey Through France and Italy, which is um, we're just researching and thinking about you and your life and what you've done. And I was, I, and the, your choice of your second book, which is Renaissance led, that this was, that here was this option that here was this other book that Stern wrote about a voyage, about this rollicking, about walking in an, in an, a non-direct way, in some ways echoing the sort of path of, of Tristram Shandy, but doing it through France and Europe and Italy and having this rollicking, bawdy time of it. And I'm always interested by the books people don't pick as well as the ones that they do, by the ones that are sort of sit alongside that you pick Anna Karenina and not War and Peace or that you, yeah, you yeah. know, there's, and that's why I, 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 anyway, it's an interesting way to maybe roll into your, your, um, well, it was your third choice, but let's do it now anyway. Your third choice was The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy by Jacob Burckhardt, which was published in 1860. 
uh, I did not know this book at all. And it's so, so fun when I do this and I get books that I've just no idea. Um, so I took a deep dive, but I want to hear from you why or how this book is meaningful to you. The Civilization Renaissance in Italy is a, a masterpiece beyond masterpieces. Burkhardt, who was a Swiss professor, took it upon himself to sum up the entire Renaissance in a relatively short book. And it just breathes somebody who has just immersed himself so completely in the material. Hmm. He can refer to literally hundreds of Renaissance figures. Hmm. It's not obvious to the reader, um, unless you dive into it, that the things that he's quoting, he will have had to read in Latin and not just in Latin, but that almost all Renaissance writing hasn't been published. So he would have had to read an enormous amount of it in manuscript tracking it down in obscure libraries. Yeah. Mm. And yet he takes all that erudition and those you know, years with dusty tomes to create an extraordinary story. And he looks at every aspect. He looks at Renaissance men like Alberti, and he brings alive Alberti not just as an architect, but as a magician and as a man who could throw coins up to the ceiling of the Duomo and who's mm -hmm. a great horseman and dancer. He's able to bring alive satire. He's able to bring alive rather pompous Renaissance Latin poetry that nobody reads anymore and explain why he should be interested in it. But above all, he does something very odd for the mid-19th century, which is he's one of the first to really imagine the idea that a period could be the moment where the individual emerges to suggest something that's very counterintuitive, that we weren't always individuals. Hmm. We were humans, of course, in terms of our species, but we were not human individuals in the way that we became after the Renaissance. Hmm. And it's really Burkhardt who has the clarity and the courage to make this apparently sort of preposterous claim, which has so much meaning for the way that we should think about our lives. Hmm. How did you encounter the book? What took you to it? I'd been reading a book by a man called James Hankins, which was called Virtue Politics, Soulcraft in Renaissance Italy, Soulcraft and Statecraft in Renaissance in Italy. And I was reading it as a politician because I was very interested in the idea of virtue or morality, the way that character might or might not feed into politics. And as I began to read Hankins, I was reminded of how little I really knew about the Renaissance and was driven back to Burkhardt to try to get the context of things like mercenary warriors. I mean, a lot of what Burkhardt writes about is court life and warfare in Renaissance Italy. Hmm. One of the things that he talks about that I was so interested in was um, just expanding on what you were saying. He, he seems to widen out um, in terms of, he starts with this wide view saying that these states in Italy uh, were, it was the sort of, the, that Italy had never succumbed to what he calls, I think, the feudalism of the medieval. So 
they were not they were not used to being part of a collective in fact they fiercely resisted uh the papacy or you know the holy Ra- uh, roman Ca- uh, catholic church and so so and so it begins on this wider level that you have the individuality of these um states that then perhaps starts breeding this birth of the individual as you say uh within each one which i i thought i i'm i'm always so interested in how the micro and the macro uh, relate yeah. to one another and mirror one another. And I, I thought that was, I was really struck by that, reading about that in the book. Well, it's, and- it is one of the great mysteries, isn't it? Because clearly the mini form of your society, the type of city you live in, can, if you get it right, have the most miraculous impact on your civilization. Hmm. The classic example being Athens. So Athens from sort of 500 to about 400, produces in this tiny little city with you know, 40, 50,000 people, something which in the United States would be a small town, you know, mm-hmm. like, like town of Branford in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But over 100 years, it produces Plato, it produces Aristotle, it produces Sophocles and Euripides, it produces Xenophon and Herodotus, it produces Pericles. So it's doing something that we would find almost incomprehensible out of a town of 50,000 people. And it's a reminder that really human genius is not, as you might imagine, a product of your genetics or your natural IQ. Presumably our own societies, you know, Britain that has 70 million people or the States is pushing towards 300 million, already, you know, have far, far more people with higher IQ than existed in Republican Athens or Renaissance Florence. So if we're not generating that level of extraordinary genius, it's to do with the that cultural context and the odd way in which the values, the education, the expectations, the conversations, and perhaps even simply the time that people had allowed them to develop their minds in these very brave and unusual ways. Do you look to the Renaissance as a time uh, to emulate? Did you, were you, ref- as a, as a politician, were you reading this and searching for this as uh, an ideal or simply as reference? Where, where does it fall for you? So for me, the Renaissance idea of virtue, which is to say moral character in politics, is, is absolutely central. And really, for 500 years, we haven't taken it seriously as an idea. We don't mm-hmm. take it seriously because the founders of the American Constitution basically thought that their job was to design laws to protect people against wicked politicians. They didn't need to worry about improving the character of politicians. They just needed to design laws so that you weren't too badly affected when a bad politician came along. And Hmm. the reason for that is it's all the fault of Machiavelli. Essentially, this one man writing a book in the early 1500s, The Prince, takes a hammer to the whole idea of moral character and politics, something which had been absolutely assumed in Renaissance Italy and assumed actually in classical Roman Greece, that politicians were supposed mm-hmm. to be virtuous people. They were supposed to be courageous, but they were also supposed to be truthful. And of course, they weren't all, right? I mean, it's an enormous amount of hypocrisy and nonsense, but it remained an ideal, a very, very important ideal. And if you tried to be Donald Trump or Boris Johnson Mm -hmm. in those societies, 
deep shame would attach to it. I mean, there'd be a very strong sense of disgrace. It's not that you couldn't be successful. You could, of course, be successful, but you would do it in a context in which people would be just so appalled uh, because they had a much clearer language in which to talk about why truthfulness mattered. So this, this mattered to me in politics. It mattered to me as I tried to think through how Boris Johnson had managed to become prime minister. And the Renaissance thinkers provided an answer for me to the fundamental question of why politicians needed to be truthful. I began to realize why truthfulness mattered. Hmm. I see you with a huge stack of books behind you. I know that you and your pa shared a huge bond and that he was a formative and clearly formidable presence in your life. Was he a reader? Was this, did, did, did this come, did he instill, did you start reading early? Where did it come from? I think probably more from my mother than my father. I mean, my father did read, hmm. um, but my mother was more thoughtful, more intellectual. Uh, hmm. She was a, ultimately a university professor. He was a kind of man of action. He'd been a soldier. He was a spy. He was a kind of you know, he, he, he really, he did read books and he enjoyed reading books, but he really enjoyed reading sort of military history, intelligence history. Right. Uh, and he was in too much of a hurry, really. He, he certainly never read a novel um, unless he was trying to put himself to sleep on the plane. And what he really wanted to do was be out uh, digging large holes in the ground. So I, I, think, <laughs> I think a, a lot of the books in the family owe more to my mother than to my father. That's so interesting. I was, we were just in Mexico on holiday and on the way home, I was reading Rachel Cusk's uh, new novel, Second Place, which I highly recommend. And I, I take notes always on books that I love and that I'm enjoying. And I wrote this down on the plane last night and it, it bears quoting just because of what you just said. Her character uh, has invited a painter to come and stay that she doesn't know very well. And he says, I've often thought it's fathers who make painters, he said, while writers come from their mothers. I asked him why he thought that. Mothers are such liars, he said. Language is all they have. They fill you up with language if you let them. This is not to cast aspersions on your mother, but I just thought it was, it was so striking. I had it's, to pull it's, that up while we were those, talking. It's, it's one of those great claims, isn't it? And I think one of the things that makes Rachel Cusk interesting is sort of in a tradition that goes back to Milan Kundera and before, which is the tradition of the kind of shocking, striking epigram and a statement mm. about the world like that, which makes mm. you stop and say, my God, how brilliant, how wise. Uh, but which also always then makes me think about two minutes later, and actually that's total nonsense. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated yes. by these things. You know, you take them and you think, what else do you mean? I mean, what do we mean? This is nonsense, right? So there's a, there's a sense in which... Um, I notice because I read a lot of books on Kindle, I buy maybe a thousand books on Kindle a year. Right? I, I read maybe wow. a thousand books a year. So my Kindle wow, is stuff full of these things. Um, and I notice that the things that everybody highlights, because I've got highlighters enabled, would be like 300 oh, highlights. Oh, God, I can't. I can't. I can't. Um, I can't what read it with other people's highlights. What always highlights are the epigrams, the mm. moment at which the writer of a uh, you know, a detective story says, you know, all women are like this and all guys are like yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Or, you know, whatever. Sure. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, highlight is great. Or the yeah. thing about life is, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And 
I, it's interesting. It would be really interesting to try to work out why that's so appealing. Um, and I'm sure that's true even for my own writing, that when I'm sort of tempted to stick the epigram in, those are the bits mm. that people remember. People want, along with the sort of showing, they want a little sort of punchy, paradoxical, provocative statement about humanity or life or something. I wonder, it's an interesting observation. I, I wonder, I mean, listening to your book, I was I was struck by not only the gift you have with language, which is really, really extraordinary, Rory. It, it, it's it's beautiful and you you paint a landscape. I, I felt like I was in Afghanistan with you. It was it was really an extraordinary thing. But the the asides were actually the parts that I loved, where you show a photograph of your family and the man, the villager that's taken you in points to the photo of his dead son on the wall and it's got garlanded with fake flowers and he died seven years ago. And just this little moment, or you need to use the, you need to use the loo and there isn't a loo. So you go outside and you're under the dark sky and you're so rarely alone because of constantly being accompanied. And it's this rare, rare moment of you being alone in relationship with this landscape. I, I I could go on. I have so many that I, and again, this is the fun of an audiobook is that you have to mentally bookmark them. You can't highlight them. Uh, it, but in some ways they sort of go in deeper. They're, they're uh, as you can tell, I'm not quoting verbatim, but they're in my, they went in my wormhole of an ear and, and they're in me. And it was so, so I disagree. I didn't. I, I would didn't notice your epigrams. I noticed your <laughs> the quiet moments of asides. I'm not very good um, at epigrams. I don't think I have any great wisdoms to share. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we say, going back to Rachel Kursk, who I revere and and, and just I'm in, in such awe of her prose style. I, I, the, the trilogy I. I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't read it. But uh, the one I really love is her very early work. Um, uh, Oh my goodness, and I'm blanking on it. It's about raising children. Um, oh my gosh, it's such an important book to me, and I'm blanking on its name. It's about becoming a mother for the first time. I'll put it in the show notes. And uh, a life's work—that's what it's called. And it is—it was radical when it came out. I don't know if you know it. And it was—it was, it was a, an excoriating look at what it is to become a mother when you are a writer, and the enormous sort of birthing pains of this new, what it is to become a new individual, forget the baby, but then, but then how to reconcile this mewling, puking creature with your creative life. And as someone who has two mewling, puking creatures, I know, I, I, I felt seen for the first time when I read this book and no one wanted their babies more than I did and, and still does. But I was you know, coming. I had my children late, and it felt such an extraordinary imposition—just a, a huge imposition—to be asked to raise this person uh, on my own. Essentially, God bless my husband. But um, and and anyway, so that was my introduction to Rachel Kerskin. I I've sort of loved her so much for that book that I've forgiven her any uh, <laughs> overstatements any, that may have come subsequently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, let's talk about your third book, which I love. Your third book is Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, uh, published in 1878. I'd had a guest earlier this season 
um, halfway through the season with you who picked this book. And so for the sake of a place to start, I throw this out there. He, he, for him, it was a book entirely about love and all the different iterations of love. Uh, what is it book for you? For me, it's about honor and meaning mm. and faith and different forms of truthfulness. The character that I'm most drawn to is Levin, this sort of awkward, mm. strange, uh, sort of gentleman farmer, almost mm. comically struggling away, trying to introduce his farming reforms. Uh, and his brief moments where he begins to think maybe he's getting into it and he goes out there to try to do a bit of mowing with the farmhands, but pretty quickly realizes that my apologies for my uh, clock going. Um, he, uh, <laughs> eventually, uh, he eventually um, obviously realizes that they know what they're doing. He doesn't. I mean, it's a, it's a great, great moment. They're much stronger than he is. He doesn't really know how to use the scythe. He's able to live out the romance, but he can't get into it. Um, I love also the sense of contingency. There's an odd moment in the book where a visitor is smoking a cigar in a wood, trying to decide whether or not to propose. And a whole life is turning on this moment. Mm. And in the end, he throws the cigar away and decides not to propose. And you get, uh, I think there's something so lovely about the way that chance and accident can suddenly spring a life in two directions. And then, of course, I think Tolstoy, although he's got a reputation for being a rather sort of ponderous moralist, is in fact incredibly funny and a beautiful social observer. And for somebody who is a bit of a sort of gloomy, misanthropic bear who tied himself away in his country estate and cobbled shoes and sneered at the aristocracy. Boy, did he understand how government departments work. I mean, even that, the opening section where our anti-hero, who's just been cheating on his wife, leaves the house and goes to his office. And he's a sort of junior minister or senior official in the department. And Tolstoy has the grace to grasp how good this guy is at his job and how odd mm -hmm. his skill is that this man is a fatuous, extravagant, unreliable philanderer. Yeah, he can barely keep his household together. But something in his manner behind his desk inspires immense loyalty and deference from his officials, and he deals with his correspondence incredibly well and fairly. And it's not really an intellectual skill, and it's not really a moral skill. It's a sort of the intense practical ease of uh, a very experienced kind of man of action. And there's something very charming also in the way in which he deals with his friend, his crazy eccentric friend, Levin, blundering in through the door, coming to see him instead of embarrassing him in his office. Well, he does embarrass him in his office, but he handles it so beautifully, you know, gets his arm around him, walks him out, stops the scene. So Tolstoy is incapable really of making anybody a villain. And it's, mm. and I think that's to do with his incredible self-awareness that every time he's tempted to simplify, he 
goes back and back and rewrites and rewrites and rewrites until he gets to something that he believes in. That's so interesting. I think, um, first of all, it's so lovely to hear the other side of the book discussed. I think we, one of the things that came up when I was talking about it last is that so many of us read Anna Karenina for the first time and it's just about Anna and Vronsky. And, and Levin is this, um, Levin and Kitty is this sort of delightful, but slightly rural and peasant back, backdrop to it. And then the rereading of Anna Karenina, I, I sort of urge people that haven't read it to hurry along and read it for the first time so that you can reread it because the rereading is actually what makes this book, uh, even more extraordinary. I, I reread it recently ish and was reminded of an essay that I, I guess I'd read it at Oxford that Isaiah Berlin wrote about Tolstoy, where he talks about, he wrote a very famous essay about um, uh, some people are foxes and some people are hedgehogs and that uh, Tolstoy was both and that foxes are, is an animal. I think the quote is um, an animal that only knows. The quote is that the quote is the fox knows many things and the hedgehog many knows things, one but the big hedgehog. thing. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you for knowing it and quoting it for me. And this idea that, um, that, that Tolstoy has this uh, foxish, foxy quality of being able to inhabit such a pluralist world, peopled with so many different characters, but also, as you say, this enormous depth of humanity that allows for us to love an adulterer and an adulteress and a withholding husband and uh, a, a boorish but well-intentioned uh, peasant or that these, that these, that wasn't Levin by the way, but, but, you know, but that there's, that as you say, there, there is this uh, bear hug that he has around the people that he brings us that is so generous in its worldview he isn't a hedgehog curled up in self-defense, um, bristling at the world, defending his patch. He has all these pathways and all these burrows into humanity in a way that is uh, just extraordinary. When did you read Anna Karenina? Do you remember? I, I first um, tried to read it when I was nine and had it confiscated <laughs> from <laughs> by my English teacher at school who said to me that I wasn't allowed to read it. He said, you can't read it. You're not allowed to read it. You've not been in love. You're not allowed to read this book. And he t took it away from me. So then I think I... That's amazing. Um, I reread it when I was, I suppose, 15, and then probably again when I was 17, and then probably again when I was 24, and then... Uh, and then I suppose I've dipped in and, in and out of it again, maybe, I suppose, half a dozen times since, yeah. Hmm. Um, I Does remember it bring comfort rereading? Um, it it it. Um, I mean, it's so close to sort of, for me, touching on almost the sort of meaning of life. I mean, I, I find also something very consoling about the society that he imagines in. Anna Karenina, and in War and Peace, and in Haji Murat, much more than Dostoevsky. Hmm. I find that very close 
uh, Russian aristocratic society in the case of the first two books, in the case of Hajimura, this Caucasian chief society, wonderfully appealing because they're tight, close societies with a very highly developed, sophisticated set of moral and social codes where you know where you stand. It's, it's, uh, it's almost like living your life permanently at university. I mean, you're surrounded by people who know you very well and everybody watches everybody else very closely. And therefore you can be a character in a much more subtle, defined sense than you can in, the, in our modern society. So our modern world is so open, vast, that we don't see the same group every night at balls and operas and levees watching each other over 40 years. We encounter each other, you know, like you and me once every 25 years or whatever, mm. or maybe a friend, or maybe once every three, four months. And we see each other in isolation for a coffee. And, and we know so many different people in so many different countries and cultures that there no longer can be in the way that there is in aristocratic Russia, a deeply developed sense of who you can be as a human. I mean, in a sense, this is the line that connects Burkhardt through that Republican Athens and these city-states in Florence are like Russia in the 19th century in so far as they're tight enough for all human effort in that small group which, you know, in the case, of course, of Russia is an aristocratic group, but in the case of Renaissance France, it doesn't need to be. I mean, that, that could be a group of people like Leonardo who are from more middle-class backgrounds. But it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that they are a small society which know each other very well and which can see their full womanhood, their full manhood, and hold each other to very exacting standards. That's very interesting. I'm going to be devil's advocate here and, and say that the idea of a closed society that knows us so intimately, to me, feels stifling, potentially. That there, that, and I would argue maybe that's what Anna finds too, is that the uh, space that has been allotted her is not enough. And that in some ways, what's required is the uh, sort of obliterative change of that train running over her body, or that, that it requires uh, something violent in order for a woman, I will speak for my gender, to be allowed to take up more space, to be allowed to occupy a different way of being and that that a very closed society perhaps uh is more useful to maintaining a status quo isn't necessarily a generative place i don't know I throw i'm that sure out. that's right and i'm sure you've put your finger on one of the interesting dimensions that which is gender and you could also mm. talk about class and you could talk about sexuality you could talk about the problem with these societies being that they work for a narrow group of elite men mm. and they don't work for other people for that narrow group of elite men of course and this is true um you know, let's look at afghanistan today but this may not be something to do necessarily about wealth or class in a small afghan village every man has a sense of sort of you feel in just the way they talk and walk they have a sort of sense of dignity and confidence and meaning 
which makes a head of a small Afghan village feel much more dignified and grand than any British prime minister or American president. But that is, of course, um, uh, not what you feel if you're a woman in an Afghan village. Right. I mean, you definitely do not feel that by definition. Right. I mean, this is a, the the thing which is immensely beneficial for the man. Um, it's not for a woman. I, I, another book that I've been reading recently that I'd really recommend um, is a fantastic account by a traveler from Togo who travels um, up to meet Eskimo up in northern Scandinavia in the 1960s. And the book begins with an account of his father, who is a junior laborer in the local electricity department in this French colony in Africa. He's a very junior employee in this electricity department. Mm -hmm. But at home, his father lives in this tin-roofed house, and in five mud huts next to him are his five wives, who come one at a time to spend a month with him and prepare delicious, delicate food for him and eat much simpler food with their children. And when our narrator is ill as a small boy, his father is a witch doctor, becomes a witch doctor, and does these incredible rituals. And you get a sense uh, of the incredible sort of sense of dignity and confidence and status of his father, who presumably from the point of view of the French manager and the electricity department is not a very important kind of low guy, but at home, you know, this is a real man, right? This is a guy. So Mm -hmm. I think maybe one of the questions as we move to more open societies is, and this maybe is, you know, part of the story of Trump and Boris and lots of other people is that of course, opening is good. And opening is very good for giving more opportunities to lots of people. But that the people who previously felt they were on top feel an immense loss of meaning and dignity and significance as that process of change goes on. You don't want to be, you know, Anna may want to break into the 20th century, but Vronsky doesn't. Vronsky Mm. would have been much better off being in war and peace and dying a heroic death fighting in the Napoleonic Wars. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to live in a world of trains. <laughs> Let's put Vronsky in war and peace. I love that. All right. I'm, I'm aware of the time and your constraints. So I'm going to move us on, although I could keep going, um, to your fourth book, which is The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. It was published in 1940. I'm a huge Greene fan. Tell me where this fits into your world, your life. Well, I reread The Power and the Glory uh, only a few months ago. And I think it is the most extraordinary account of what sainthood might be. Hmm. Our central character is this whiskey priest who is, in his own eyes, and maybe in the eyes of most people surrounds him, a failure. He's schlepping around rural Mexico at a time when Catholicism has been outlawed, and he has... Basically, nobody wants to come to mass with him because they're terrified. And when he does give them mass, they're liable to be murdered by the police. And he's worried that he's actually doing harm by continuing to schlep around. Mm. 
and he's continually tempted by the idea he can just cross the border into another state in Mexico where he would be able to live a normal life again. And yet he continues to risk other people's lives and risk his own life because he thinks it's his duty as a Catholic priest to do it. And finally is executed after a final night in which no great illumination comes. He goes to his death, still thinking of himself as a, a bit of a failure. Glimpsing, he says, what it might be to really be a saint. And yet one senses that this is the man who sees himself as a coward, sees himself as a failure, who is a, a much braver, much more successful, much more extraordinary human than, than almost anyone conceivable. When did you read it for the first time? Do you remember? Probably when I was um, 14 or 15. Did it mean to you, what did it mean to you then? Difficult to recover that. I mean, I, it's not one of those books where I have a strong memory of changing my view of it. I do with some. I mean, um, mm. I remember, for example, with uh, Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, that when I read it at 14 or 15, I thought all the grown-ups in the book were absolute idiots and that the young people were the heroes. And then when I reread it at 25, I suddenly realized that the young people were complete idiots and that they were obvious idiots and that the old people were heroes. But I, I don't feel that so much for this. Have you read um, the book Silence by uh, Shusaku Endo? No. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's such a. It, it's the um, he's a Japanese writer, and it's the parallel book, if you like, to the Power and the Glory, uh, about a Catholic Portuguese Catholic priest uh, missionary in seventeenth uh, century Japan who is sent to Japan to uh, find out why the Catholic missions are disappearing because there's been, there's been a burgeoning. Uh, Catholic ministry there and it's starting to fade. And uh, it is as devastating a portrait as the power and the glory. It's, it's, I think um, it feels weightier. The power and the glory has, has uh, Green's effortless ability to combine the sort of minutia of life and the dustiness and the smells. And the, the, he's, he's a great, sensualist green i think and um this is a much more austere book it's written by a, a japanese author uh, i highly recommend it i found it uh, it's one of the few books that has made me weep in its last pages i mean actually weep and it was it, it reminded me so much of it it reminded me of the power and the glory when i read it and then you write you you choosing this book had had made me think of it so for add that to your list of a thousand books to I will. I will. <laughs> to um, let's talk about your last book, which is another one that I had never heard of and loved researching. Absolutely loved researching. Uh, I'm going to read the full title, which is written here. The fifth book you chose is The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist the subtitle of which is The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. 2009 it was published. Uh, 
this was just a treat to discover. So thank you, Rory. I, I'm, I've already ordered it. I'm really looking forward to this one. But it does beg the question, of the five books that have shaped you most, tell me why this one is on your list. So this is a book written by a academic. He's a combination of a sort of psychiatrist, cultural historian, self-trained neuroscientist. Hmm. And he is trying to write about the difference between the right and the left hemispheres of the brain and the way in which that impacts our entire culture and civilization. It's firstly the most extraordinary intellectual attempt. I mean, he literally masters thousands of obscure academic articles and tries to produce from this incredible array of academic work an overall theory, which nobody else would attempt to do. In fact, basically, the problem, as you know, in modern academia is everybody's so specialized that mm -hmm. nobody mm -hmm. feels confident enough to try to provide an overall theory. So he's setting himself up to be attacked by everybody. <laughs> and talking about differences between right and left hemispheres is kind of famously sort of new agey and people are very suspicious of it from the beginning. But he does it with immense learning and immense rigor. And you would have to be a very, very confident person to think that you're going to be able to take him on on these 7,000 articles. And the conclusion he draws is startling because it relates to philosophy. It relates to literature and art history. It relates to the questions of our meaning of our life. And basically what he's arguing is that the right hemisphere, which you know, people often see as a sort of more feminine hemisphere, um, has been totally overshadowed by the left hemisphere, which he portrays as a sort of, that it claims to be, it, it isn't really, but it claims to be the kind of hyper-rational, super-logical I'm going to get everything in neat categories, part of the brain. And it misses so much the left hemisphere. Mm -hmm. The right hemisphere is able to do this sort of gestalt appreciation. It, it, can, it's, it can intuit patterns much more straightforwardly. It can empathize. It can see the present moment. Whereas the left hemisphere is perpetually cutting and dividing the world up into these neat segments, and in doing so, completely misrepresenting it. Hmm. The left hemisphere is hyper-rational, hyper-scientific, in terms of uh, economics would be incredibly kind of materialistic, pounds, penny, and cents, no room really for ambiguity, for metaphor, whereas the right hemisphere in McGilchrist's account, is the seat of metaphor, the seat of mm -hmm. paradox, the seat of um, grasping things. And essentially his argument is that our entire civilization is collapsing because the left hemisphere has usurped mm -hmm. the position of the right hemisphere and that we've lost touch with what it means to be human and that really almost everything that's worthwhile in human civilization and achievement came from periods where these hemispheres were properly balanced, properly in tune with each other. 
Tell me what it means to you to live in a world where you lean more heavily on your right hemisphere. What does that look like? How does one experience that? For me, partly I tripped across it uh, meditating. So I've done two 11-day silent retreats, uh, which mm. have been um, wonderful for me. Mm. Partly, it's my experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, where I realized that a very hyper-rational, pseudoscientific idea of state building, you know, let's divide Afghanistan up into 10 functions of a state, let's write 300-page PowerPoint presentations on how we're going to rebuild it, mm. totally failed, because they completely failed to actually listen to the texture of society mm. in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, there's actually an interesting echo of Levin. I mean, Levin basically does makes the same point. He says, you know, I'm trying to import all these English agricultural techniques into Russia, and I don't really understand Russian culture and the context in which I'm operating, which make none of these theories in my books really work. So I think I, I feel it from the spiritual point of view. I, I feel it also just as a policymaker and a practical person that we are so misled by this crazy, hyper-rational scientific worldview. It's that which leads us to think, well, this is fine. You know, I'm going to, what's the problem in Afghanistan? Corruption. Okay, here's my 10-step program for eliminating all corruption in the next two years. Boom, here I go. Mm -hmm. So this proposes something more holistic in that you're you're asking for an understand a, a widening out, right? Yeah, Isn't that a widening out and attentiveness, an understanding of tradition, of the past, of meaning, a suspicion of technocratic solutions, a doubt about the modern world, a sense of anxiety about modernity, hmm. a sense that there's something in the minds of these people we've been talking about of, you know, 18th century figures like Lawrence Stern, of people like Tolstoy, people like mm. Burkhardt, which are almost impossible to imagine today. Mm. That there's levels of genius and perception which we're entirely lacking. That Rachel Cusk, for all her merits, is not Tolstoy, nor is ever going mm. to be. And that the gap is something that we may not be very aware of today, but would be very obvious to somebody in 500 years' time. Mm. Rory, you've selected polymath after polymath, and I have to hold the mirror back up to you and thank you for your erudition and your depth of reading and for all you bring as a diplomat, as a politician, as a writer, as an explorer. You are a true Renaissance man, Rory, and uh, it's, it's, it's humbling. It's genuinely humbling and inspiring to talk to you and imagine what your 25 years have been. It's it's uh it's an amazing thing. And and thank you for taking the time and being so thoughtful in your choices and in your discussion and uh I'm I'm truly, truly grateful to you. Thank you. Well thank you, thank you, thank you very much. This was a great pleasure and um hope we can meet before twenty five years elapses. That would be really lovely. <laughs> Take care. Bye bye. Thank you again. Bye. 
My deep thanks to Rory for carving out time from his packed schedule and stretching my brain with his thought-provoking books. I loved that both he and Darren Strauss, last week's guest, both picked Anna Karenina and that it means such different things to each of them. It's sort of the point of the podcast, exploring how books mean such different things to us in different moments of our lives. Anyway, I hope this was as fascinating for you as it was for me. Uh, he told us he reads a thousand books a year. How many books do you read in a month? I'm curious. Do you need silence? Can you read in public? Uh, do you read in a train? Do you need a quiet corner? I, I need a quiet nook and a cup of tea. And preferably my kids in a completely different room or house. <laughs> anyway, as ever, you can find the books we discussed in the show notes or on the show's website. Please like, subscribe, review, and share the show. It really helps spread the word. The show was produced, as ever, by Bree Weiss and the music by Davy Holmes. And thank you, as always, for listening. Next week's guest is the wonderful Carol Dysinger, winner of last year's Academy Award for Best Short Documentary. I can't wait to share her with you.